Good morning. So great to be here with you all this morning. Romans 1, uh, verse 16. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to all who believe. Just, just pause for a moment again, just to pray. Father, it's so good to be in your presence. We thank you that you welcome us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross that enables us to be here together before the mighty God, our loving Heavenly Father. Father, would you speak this morning? Holy Spirit, we welcome you here and we ask you to bring revelation in our hearts, give us understanding. Just reveal that which it is that you want to teach us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. I wonder, have you ever had a tumbleweed moment? you know what that is? It's kind of when you're in a conversation and you say something and it suddenly goes really silent, awkwardly silent. You can almost hear that tumbleweed blowing across the desert. You know that feeling? Uh, my wife, Debs, and I had the privilege for the last 35 or so years, we've, um, we've been, had the privilege of uh, operating a, a ministry, a Christian drama ministry. Um, it's a globe, we're part of a global ministry, and uh, we've had some wonderful experiences through that. The name of the drama that we present is Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames, so you can probably see where I'm going with this. So we would regularly get tumbleweed moments when you're in a, a new social sort of situation and maybe there's a group of people or some that you haven't met before. And the conversation will go something like, oh yeah, so, so what do you do then? Oh, well we do, um, we do a Christian drama ministry. We present drama in churches. Oh, what's that called? Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Or there was the time when, uh, this is even more extreme, there was a time when we went to CRE, Christian Resources Exhibition. Uh, it's, it's a big exhibition, hundreds of, of exhibitors there, everything from candles and incense and prayer cushions right through chairs and projectors up to ministries, um, children's ministry, drama ministry, all that kind of thing. And so we were there with our stand and, and the names are above every stand and people were coming down the row and they're, they're kind of looking to see where they want to stop. And the reaction was fascinating as, as they came to heaven's gates and hell's flames. Some, some put their hand over their mouth and pointed, some clutched their stomach and laughed and, and, and some even grabbed their friend and rushed by. I'm not quite sure what it was that they were expecting to happen, whether they thought the devil was going to leap out and grab them or something. But it's an interesting reaction, isn't it? And I, my guess is, I'm not a terribly smart fellow, but my guess is the problem is not heaven's gates, but that word hell. And the reality is for us, church, isn't it, that there's some awkward stuff in Scripture, isn't there? The gospel contains some difficult words, some difficult passages. And... Really, for most of us, we, we kind of feel a little bit uncomfortable for, you know, maybe going there sometimes. And so this morning, I, I, I want to, if you'll bear with me, I want to just, I'm, I'm not here to defend our ministry or, or, to, um, or to promote it. It is what it is. But I am here to defend the gospel. 
And so I, I wonder if you'll bear with me just to sort of open out some of some thoughts around the gospel and what the Bible tells us and, and so on. And so I want to begin with what I would call um, the uncomfortable truth. I'm just going to speak a few words and, and a few scriptures. Sinner, judgment, the wrath of God, death, hell, repent. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for a man once to die and after that the judgment. Matthew 12.36, but I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment. Matthew 10.28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Revelation 20, 15, and if anyone's name is not found written in the book, they were cast into the lake of fire. It's pretty hefty stuff, isn't it? And I could go on, there's many more scriptures. And I don't know about you, but I find it fascinating that So often when you see something on telly maybe about a particularly bad crime, a particularly gruesome murder or mass murder or or rape or, or child abuse, and very often you'll hear people say, there's a special place in hell for you. And it's kind of like we we like to hold that place of ultimate punishment for those people that we see as the ultimate sinners, the ultimate bad people. But then as you explore scripture, you come across texts like this, Matthew 5, 22. You've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fall will be liable to the fire of hell. Kind of gets a little bit closer to home, doesn't it, when we read passages like that. And then Jesus goes on a little bit further in that passage to talk about adultery. The law says don't commit adultery, but, but I tell you, this is Jesus speaking to the people. I tell you, you know, if you look upon someone lust, lustfully, it's the same. It's clear from scripture, isn't it, that sin is a problem to God. That it separates us from him. That judgment will happen one day. And that hell as a consequence of our sin is a reality we should all be aware of. But then on the flip side, there's what I would call the comfortable truth. Love, grace, forgiveness, freedom. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Romans 6.14, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. John 1.16, and from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. These are much more attractive words, aren't they? A much more attractive message. The great writer C.S. Lewis once said, if there was one thing I wish could be removed from the Bible, it's the message of hell. But it can't. So we have a dilemma. What do we do with this dilemma? These, if you like, these clashings of of, of teachings that we we, we find in in Scripture. 
Well, the world's response is to change the meaning of the words. So hell becomes that place where the naughty but fun people go. You know, the people having a party. If, you, if, if you're in any big city at the weekend, you're likely to see a hen party and, and, and women going around with devil horns on. Okay, it's a fun thing, isn't it, hell? I've even had a Christian person once say to me, you know, if Chris, if, if you knew all your family and friends were going to hell, wouldn't you want to go and be there with them? My friends, the Bible doesn't describe hell as a place where we're sitting around having a cup of tea or something stronger. The Bible describes it as weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, eternal torment. Is that real? Can we believe what scripture says? The world says change the narrative. Sorry, the world changes the narrative. How dare you say I'm a sinner? How dare you say my lifestyle is wrong? Christianity is about love and acceptance, isn't it? So if you don't accept the way I live, then you're hateful. The world says create your own truth and be proud of it. What has the church's response been to this dilemma? I've been a Christian for 57 years. and I know it doesn't look possible. I, I became a Christian at minus 10, okay? Um, the last 30 or 40 years has seen a huge shift in the church's approach to the gospel. We've gone from gospel uh, Sunday, gospel meetings every Sunday night. There's a good old bit of pulpit thumping and hellfire preaching. And we've kind of gone, I can see a few nodding heads, so I don't know, some of the people that have been through that era, the same as me. We've gone from that to, in some circles, particularly in the Western church, to almost exclusive uh, preaching on God's love and grace. Now, the love and grace is not wrong, but it's not complete. Both of these are are, are things that we, we see in Scripture. Rob Bell, uh, the ex-pastor of Mars Hill Church in the USA and an author, wrote the book Love Wins. And in that book, he grapples with this whole subject. He begins at the place of surely a loving God wouldn't allow anybody to go to hell. And so he grapples with scripture until he gets to a place where he assures us, no, you're okay. A loving God wouldn't do that. Another pastor and an author, Francis Chan, wrote a book in response to Rob Bell's book, and he calls that Erasing Hell. And in that book, he says we need to start from Scripture. That's our starting place. And if we elevate our thoughts and our ideas above Scripture, then we're putting ourselves above God's Word and our thoughts above God's Word. So how should we approach this? Is the Bible wrong? What is it? Is it judgment or grace? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Should we be changing the Bible to make it more attractive to the world? Our wonderful Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, who recently um, passed away, made a statement. None of us can slow the passage of time. And while we often focus on all that has changed in the intervening years, much remains unchanged, including the gospel of Christ and his teachings. I love that. What a wise lady she was.
Much remains unchanged, including the gospel of Christ and his teachings. You see, she understood, she clearly understood that in the midst of a changing world, there is something which is constant. That constant is God. The Bible tells us he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The gospel of Christ is the same. It's a constant and she understood that, um, that as we live our lives, as years go by, society develops and it evolves. And ideas change and, and values change. Things that we once thought were okay are not okay. Things we once thought were bad are now good. And she understood that in the midst of a changing world, there is a constant. My friends, the gospel hasn't changed But our approach to it often changes depending on how we feel about it and what's being taught. There was a, I just want to ask the question is, is the gospel a story of contradiction? Or is it a story, as I would like to present this morning, is it a story of glorious extremes? I'm going to nail my colors to the mast. I'm an extremist. Okay, I'm not a not a religious extremist. Religion, I don't do religion, and quite rightly so. Religious extremism is frowned on. We can have the next slide. There is the gospel a, a story of contradiction, or is it a, a story of of glorious extremes? So I'm an extremist. I'm a I'm a gospel extremist. I believe that the extremes of the gospel coming from a place. Of, of acknowledging our sin and recognizing the power of the cross and coming to a place of freedom in Christ. Those extremes are what makes the story glorious. Those extremes are what makes sense of the story. I get quite sad in my spirit when I, when I kind of hear the whole thing sort of narrowed down to, well, you know, somebody, we're, you know, I'm a little bit bad and, 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 you know, God loves me and, and Jesus loved me and died for me and, and, and so I'll follow him. The story is much more extreme than that. We sing, we, we read in scripture and we sing, I was blind but now I see. That's an extreme. You know, I was lost but now I'm found. I've gone from death to life. I've been born again, the Bible tells us. It's, it's a completely new start. It's a complete change. This is a story, I believe, of glorious extremes. There was a wonderful old preacher that used to come here, and he often preached on a Sunday night. And he, he uh, talked about this challenge that we often find in Scripture where we, where we see the, these contrasts, and, and, and maybe we, we find that we find two extremes conflict. And he gave an illustration of a tent. He wasn't talking about the, the modern sort of pop-up tents with the bendy poles, but the old-fashioned A-frame tents, those of us that can remember those, the canvas things, you know, uh, sort of like in the shape of an A, and you'd have a pole in the middle and, and two guy ropes holding it. And those guy ropes would be held in, in, in equal tension, and it's the tension, the equal tension on both of those that holds it up. And he, he talked about how Scripture is often like that. If you focus too much on one side, the whole thing falls down. If you focus too much on the other side, the whole thing falls down. If all we focus on is, is sin and uh, sin and judgment and, and death and hell, then the whole story falls over. If we only focus on love and grace, then the story falls over. 
If you take that illustration a little further, there's that pole in the middle. And that's the thing that kind of holds the tent up. If you remove that, the whole thing collapses, doesn't it? And what you're left with is rope. One side pulling against another. And very often people have treated the gospel like that, like a tug of war. Well, it's, well, it's sin and, uh, and judgment. No, it's, it's love and grace. What is God's response to this dilemma? God's response is to put the cross right in the middle. We can have our guys up to help me here. We're going to do a little bit of rearranging here. You see the cross? The cross is that central thing that God put right in the center of, of this story. The cross is what makes sense of the whole story. Thankful to Doug for building this thing. It's great. It's a great reminder every week, isn't it? Of God's love and his grace for us. If we can come right right over here. That'd be great. Thank you, guys. You see, God's response is the cross. God's response, his act of love wasn't to say, do you know what, guys? You're all okay. Don't worry. Just carry on as you are. It's okay because I love you. God's act of love was to put it all right. And he did that through the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, that was much more than, than just a nice act by a good man. You know, the Bible tells us that when Jesus went to the cross, he took upon himself the guilt and the shame of all of our sin. He became sin for us. Have you ever been accused of something you've not done? Accused of a wrong that you've not done? Can you imagine there's been, there's been instances in the, in the past where somebody's been prison, in prison for a murder and years later evidence comes out, new evidence comes out and it's found that they weren't actually guilty of that murder. Can you imagine how that must feel? Being accused of that awful crime? There's been cases I've read about in the past of, of wrong information getting out in a community that somebody's a pedophile and suddenly there's, there's graffiti and bricks through the window and, uh, and, and abuse in the street and death threats. Can you imagine being accused of that when you're innocent? Jesus went through that billions of times over because when he, when he went to the cross, he took everything. He became that sin. He took upon himself the guilt and the shame of that sin. To the point where he cried out to his father, why have you forsaken me? His father couldn't even look on him anymore because he embodied that sin. This was not some little act. This was the ultimate act of love. But when he did that, When that was completed, his final words were, it is finished. It's done. It's complete. The job has been done. The thing I came for has been completed. There is no longer that barrier between us and God. I just want to bring 
a little caution in here because sometimes that message gets taken on a little bit further and sometimes we say, you know, everything has been done, which is true. You don't have to do anything. And I kind of get a little awkward when I hear that because I believe it's possible to be 100% correct but not 100% complete in our theology. Because it's absolutely true that everything has been done for us on the cross. It's absolutely true that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. But there is a response that's needed. We don't just sit back and say, well, that's great. How lovely that God has done that for me. How lovely that Jesus did that for me. And our response, God's response is to put the cross right in the center of the story. That's what bridges between uh, sin and death and hell and, 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 and life abundant, eternal life. Our response is repentance. Repentance has got a bit of a bad rap over the years. People see it as a negative thing. It's the most beautiful thing ever, I think. Because repentance is the thing that takes us from here to there, from one extreme to the other. Repentance simply means a turning around in its most simple, simplest form. But it's, it's much bigger than that, isn't it? You know, this is an epic story, an epic journey, I believe. It begins with a humbling of the heart. That I can't do this all on my own, that I'm not strong enough, I'm not good enough on my own. I believe it needs a spirit revelation, a revelation of the spirit of our sin and our need of a saviour. And then it goes on to an acknowledgement that of the power of the cross and what Jesus did there and the recognition of the power of his blood on the cross. But then it doesn't stop there. As we ask for forgiveness, we come to a place where now we're forgiven, we're children of God. We come into an intimate relationship with him. We're no longer under condemnation. Can I say that again, church? We're no longer under condemnation. We're set free. We're in a new relationship. We're born again. We have new life. Jesus himself said, I've come that you might have life and have it in abundance. We can know eternal life with him in heaven. Friends, that's an epic journey, isn't it? We've gone from the worst situation you can imagine, totally lost in our sin, to a place where we're set free, no longer under the law, no longer under condemnation. Knowing the life that we were created for, knowing eternal life with him in heaven. For some, I'm just going to bring this forward. For some of you now, you might be thinking, Chris, that's all very well. That sounds great. It sounds exciting. But I struggle. I've kind of done that. I, I've invited Jesus into my life. But somehow, I just can't shake off sin. I still sin. I've heard people say, I don't feel good enough. Is that you? Have you, have you said that before? I don't feel good enough. 
Friend, I want to say this in the most delicate and loving way. You're not. You're absolutely right. You're not. You're not good enough and neither am I and neither is anybody. None of us is good enough on our own. But that's the whole point of the cross. Amen? That's the whole point of the cross. None of us is good enough. None of us can impress God with our holiness. But in Christ, we are made righteous. In Christ, we are restored to right relationship with God. When we enter into that relationship with, with, with God, we, we start again. Everything is new. We are no longer under the law, the Bible says. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to keep repeating that this morning because some of you struggle, I struggle, we all struggle, to really embed that in our spirit. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that that means that the old living under the law, that has all been dealt with. The justice has been dealt with. When we came to Christ in his act on the cross, that's been dealt with. It's done. It's finished. So what happens now? And and maybe some of you are thinking this. What happens now? What about when I sin? Does that matter anymore or not? Paul struggled with that, didn't he? In Romans. Excuse me. I'm emotional about all this. Paul struggled with all of that, didn't he? In Romans, you, you, you hear him struggling. So... What, do we just carry on sinning because grace abounds when, when I sin, so there's more grace if I just keep on sinning? Well, no, of course not. Also, later on, you, you, you hear him grappling with that. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. He was grappling with the same stuff that you and I grapple with. In Matthew chapter 28, and um, well, verse 19 is, is, is the one we quote a lot, the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. And I think Jim Thomas quoted it last week, didn't he, and spoke about it. And that's that's good and that's right and that's proper. But very often we we finish there and we don't go on to, to verse 20, which is really a continuation of the same sentence. And it says, and teach them to obey everything I commanded you. So how do we deal with this? He's given us commands. We've got to obey those commands. But we're not under the law, surely. And this is where I think it's really important for us to understand the difference between being under the law and being in relationship with God. You see, this obeying his commands, I want to give three, I want to propose three reasons why we would want to obey what he's commanded us. And the first of these is because he said so. Who is he? He is God. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, he's the one that's seated on the throne. He is the Almighty, he's the all-powerful God. We have chosen to come under his rule. We've chosen to submit ourselves to him. We say, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm going to follow his ways. So we've chosen to obey his rule. We've chosen to come out of the kingdom of this world and to start living in the kingdom of heaven. Why have we chosen to do that? Because we believe that living in the kingdom of heaven is better than living in the kingdom of this world. And so if the king of this kingdom that we're living in says, this is the way you need to live, then it makes sense to live that way, right? 
makes sense to obey him. The second reason I want to give is because of relationship. Relationship changes everything, doesn't it? I have a, a wonderful wife, Debs. We've been together 48 years, married 45. Yeah, we got married when we were... Yeah, anyway. <laughs> we didn't build our relationship on a set of rules. We don't have a big chart up in, in, in the kitchen saying, you must do this, you must do this, you must do this. She's lovely, my wife. There's one thing that I, I do know that I've discovered and, and is embedded deep in me that I know for sure. She needs to have caffeine coursing through her veins by 10 o'clock in the morning in order to function and in order to be happy. Okay, so, I mean, we were away on a mission in, in the Hull a few weeks back and, and there was a, a lovely, one of those lovely barista type cafes just over the road. And, uh, and so I went every morning when we arrived at the church to start work, I went over and got her a coffee. Now, do I do that because there's there's something on my wall that says thou must go and get Debs a coffee before 10 o'clock in the morning? No, of course not. I do it because I know that she appreciates it. I know it blesses her. And we do things, she does things for me. We do things that honor each other, that, that show our love and our care for each other. And because we care about building that relationship. So it is with God. Relationship changes everything. I chuckled a couple of weeks back, I think it was, or a few days ago, I don't know. I saw on the news that um, young Prince George had said something at school to his mates. And he said, um, he said you better be careful because my dad's going to be king. I thought that was so wonderful. Our dad, our father. You know, when we enter into relationship with God, this is not a scary, almighty God This is a a father that loves us. We are told we can refer to him as Abba Father. That's the equivalent of Daddy. It's an intimate relationship. So when the devil starts getting at you, and he does, doesn't he? You can say, do you know what? My father, he's the king. He's the king of kings. He's already defeated you. He's already won the victory over what you're trying to do in my life. So relationship changes everything. And then the last reason that I want to give is because it gives life. And the Bible describes the kingdom of heaven. We were talking just now about the, the, the kingdoms. We've, we've come out of the kingdom of earth into the kingdom of heaven. And the Bible describes the kingdom of heaven as so valuable that you would go and sell everything you've got to get it. It describes it like a man goes into a field. Can you imagine in modern day terms, you know, a man with a, a metal detector or something and he, he discovers this huge stash of, of treasure. And he goes away and he sells everything he's got, the house, the car, everything, to go back and buy that field. Why? Because then he's got even more value than what he had before. And that's how the Bible describes the kingdom of heaven, the values of the kingdom of heaven. So in order, God knows he gives us his commands because he knows that that leads us to life. Life in abundance, life in all its fullness. The life that he came to give. I want to encourage you friends to keep short accounts. I want to encourage you to understand that God is for you, not against you. 
That's really important to grasp. He's for you, not against you. And I'm going to say it again. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That needs deeply embedding in our spirits. We're not good enough in ourselves, but we're fantastic in him. We are made righteous again in his sight. Understand how God's forgiveness works. You see, he forgives in a different way to us. For us, we can still remember, can't we? My guess is if you've chosen to forgive somebody for something next week, maybe even next year, you can still remember what it was. But the Bible tells us that God's forgiveness is so complete, it's as if it had never happened. It's so complete that he removes it. The Bible says he takes our transgressions as far away from us as the east is from the west. There is no measure of the east from the west. So the problem is not on God's part. His forgiveness is so complete, it's like it never happened. The problem is on our part. Because you know what we do? It's like we, we keep laying things at the cross. God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And as far as God's concerned, that's gone because it's un, un, under the blood. But what we do is we have our little box of sins. And we keep going back and we rake through them. Oh, what a terrible thing I did then. I'm so bad. How can God look on me with love when I'm such a bad person? And that stuff that you're raking around in, God is like, what? Why are you raking over that stuff still? I believe that there's a really powerful message in there and a really powerful ministry in there for people. So many of us struggle with that area of living in the life of fullness that we gain through the cross. You see, the problem, I think, when we look at that text, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation for those who believe. I, I believe that the problem is not in the message. The problem is in our understanding of it. And our, and our ability to move from one extreme to the other. And to really take hold of the life that we have in Christ. And to live that life.